I love baptism. And especially seeing these young lives give their hearts to Jesus. I mean, it's, it's, it's intervention before prevention. And our prayer here at this church is that, man, if these students could let the truth of Christ um, be what they root their heart and their faith into, wouldn't that be awesome at such a young age? So thank you, Stacy. Thank you to all you teachers of the orchard who pour your life into these kids weekly. Um, we don't babysit during the service. We are raising up the next generation of this church. Yeah, so it's, it's a big deal. Before I get started, if you're a guest with ours today, I'd like to welcome you. Uh, my name is Daniel Self. I'm lead pastor here. I'm going to have a little bit of a hometown talk with um, the Orchard for just a second. We don't talk about money a lot here, but I do want to be, um, it's a new day. I want to be transparent. I want to bring some things to you. I want to celebrate some things, and then I want um, to look ahead at the future. As I took over uh, just a two, mo- two months or so ago, I got a, a fresh look at the, the finances. And there was one thing I saw that if, if, if God could do this one thing, it would change everything for us. You see, so many of you have stepped up in your, your, your fueling and your resourcing the vision in a whole new way. And God is moving in this place. And as I looked at the finances, I saw that we have some debt that we carry. Uh, we had a, a, an amazing gift of the gathering center, and from that, um, we have a little bit of residual. We have paid over half of it off. We only have not, only nine years left, but we have these two loans. One is ninety thousand. One six hundred and eight thousand. And as I looked at that, and became lead pastor, I was like, you know what? I'm praying that God would move in power. Nine years is great, but the moment that that is paid off, it changes all the rules for how we interact here in this room, and in the city, and in the region. Well, God has been moving, and just this week, somebody anonymously came forward and said, here's a check for 75000 for the, the smaller loan. And so we have almost completely... <laughs> so that, that first loan will be paid off by, hopefully by the end of the year. And, and as that happens, it really allows us to step out and be who I think God wants us to be in the future. That we're not going to live anymore in the scarcity of the past. And, and, and it's not so important what happens in here. It's, it's important that we take what's in here out there. And so this is allowing us to do one of those. And in fact, um, about a month ago, there was a, there's a smaller church in the area that had, a, had some flooding issues. And um, they're not extremely resourced. I saw that that had happened, and I began to pray about it. And I, I, I called the elders, and I said, hey, guys, I'm, I want you to pray about being generous to this church. They, they're, they're much different than us, but they are on vision with what God's given them. And they are building a kingdom. And as we prayed about it, elders and I agreed that we want to be generous. And so we got to, I got to go over there and, and hand him a check and just say, the orchard loves you. And the orchard believes in you as a church. And we believe that we are all in this together building God's kingdom. So thank you so much. And as it happened, it was just an amazing moment to see that just a taste of the impact that the orchard is going to have resourcing regionally. And who knows what else it's going to look like. But for you people here, Thank you so much for generosity. I want you to know as your lead pastor, I don't look at that huge debt and go, oh no. I look at it and say, God, this is yours. And I'm praying, and I've been praying boldly and audaciously that God do something, not in nine years, but in one year. And that we see that God can move in power. So I want you guys to pray along with me. I, I, I thank you so much that you are seeing the vision and stepping into it. Um, so this is just a moment to step aside. And I wanted to be completely transparent with where we are, but also where we're going. Okay? So I promise we won't do a lot of money talks all the time. But I thought this was an appropriate one. And also to celebrate what God's doing. Okay? Deal? Deal. All right. Well, as we move into this sermon, it's, it's back to school. And I thought, you know, there's, there's nothing that would be more inspiring... Then talk about what it means for Jesus to go to school. 
And that is the most uninspiring line I could think of. You're now like, oh, great, that sounds awesome. Sign me up for that sermon. But I just want to say, well, here we are in the edge of a school year, and I want to give us some context in the, the life of Jesus. That I think if we get this context, we will read Jesus differently. Context is important. And so when Jesus says some certain things, or when Jesus gives an invitation, there's a reason why. And today we're going to look at some of that. So, what was school like in Jesus' day? This is important, and I promise you'll see why. You know, in his day, it was religion, it was dominated by religion, the whole society. The politics, the education, the culture, all of it flowed out of the religious system they had. And at the top of the religious system were these, these cream of the crop, the most honored people in the society, the rabbis, the priests, the teachers of the law, the, the Sadducees, the Pharisees. They were honored and respected by the people. So they could walk around and, and the people would, would love to be near them and be around them. These were true holy people and gurus who were respected. Now, now schooling back then started around the time it does here. But it truly only continued, the student only advanced as long as they could or wanted to. Can you imagine that? School stops and you get tired of it? My kid would already be graduated. He'd be just done. But so in this society, it was different. They would, they, they would, they would advance as far as they could, and then that was it. In the religious school, their curriculum was what's called the Torah and the Talmud. It's, it's the Old Testament, the Jewish Old Testament. And that was how they, that was the foundation of their curriculum. So a little, a little child was, you know, five-ish. They would go to the local synagogue, their local church, and they would start school. And it was called Beit Sefer. And Beit Sefer means house of the book. We're going to learn about that. So Jesus, he would have gone to Beit Sefer, and he would have attended Beit Sefer from the age of around five to the age of ten. Five days a week, Monday through Friday, and each of those days he would go to that synagogue, and there the Torah teacher would begin showing and revealing the basics of the Torah. They would learn to read and write based on the Old Testament. Now the Torah is the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The children were taught straight from God's word, what it meant, how it revealed who God was, and how it revealed who they were, and how they should engage in living. And through great effort, the, the teachers would make certain that these, these children grew up knowing how important God and God's word would be in their life. And there's, there's stories of the sages as they tell about their first day of school. Oftentimes, and this still happens in some places today, they would go to their first day of their first class of Beit Sefer, these young, young little guys and girls, and the rabbi would go around. You got to imagine back in Jesus' time. He would take a dollop of honey and put it in the middle of each of their slates. Now the slate is where they would write their letters, where they would learn the Torah. It was the, the, the ground zero of their education. He would put a dollop of honey on each of their slates. Now honey back then wasn't as common as it is now. And they didn't have Starburst or anything like that. And so you have to imagine, a lot of these kids from a smaller community, impoverished, they didn't get honey. Many of them had never tasted honey. Honey. Can you imagine what honey would taste like if you've never had something so sweet? So the rabbi would put a dollop on each of their slate, and then he would say, children, taste. And they would lick the honey off of their slate. And as they did, he would repeat the words of Psalm 119, 103. May the words of God be sweet to your taste, sweeter than honey in your mouth. And he would begin to teach them how, as long as they go through life, may God's word be the sweetest thing to their soul. May they always have that moment. Can you imagine a kid first tasting honey? <gasps> to, have, to carry that moment with you every time you engage God and his word. This is how they were introduced to the scriptures. Now, it wasn't always honey. 
It got very difficult from there because they had to memorize large chunks of the Torah. And year by year, they would build their foundation, ages five, six, seven, eight, nine, and finally 10. They would begin memorizing story after story and account from the Torah, word for word. And catch this, by the age of 10, a successful Beit Sefer student who was ready to graduate would have memorized the entirety of the Torah, word for word, the first five books of the Bible. Now, there's no numbers, there's no chapters. They wouldn't reference something. The, the instructor would start the verse and you would have to finish the verse. And it could be any in here. They had to master this information. They had to interact with it. Can you imagine a 10-year-old having five books of the Bible memorized? Now, obviously, not every student could do this or wanted to do this. And so many would, would um, be graciously let go, and they would go back to their families and their communities. But the ones who did complete this, the, the, the best of those classes, would, would graduate and would go to the next phase of schooling. <clears throat> Beit Talmud. Now, Beit Talmud means house of learning. And roughly from the ages of 10 to 14 in Beit Talmud, they would memorize, <laughs> they would memorize the rest of the, of the Old Testament. Go to Malachi, page 670, and they would memorize the rest of the Old Testament by the age of 14. I mean, we think our school's hard. Memorizing the Old Testament by the age of 14. Genesis to Malachi. Each word known. It also started this new tradition, or this not a new tradition, there was another tradition there about not just memorizing information for a test, but learning how to interact with it. And in Jesus' day, the rabbis would teach you that oftentimes the correct response to a question was the right question. Another question. It showed you knew, you knew how to interact with the material. One rab rabbi tells about his first day in, in the Hebrew seminary, and the, 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 the Torah teacher got up there on stage, and he wrote a verse on the board. He said, you only have one assignment this whole week. Each of you, go back for the week. Think up every question you can think of that has to do with this one verse. That's your only job. Write down every question you can think of and then come back. And next week, we'll add them together and see what we learned. Week goes by. Every student takes the verse and they write down every question. Who's the audience? What are we doing here? Whatever it would be. They come back and, and the Torah teacher collects all their questions and tallies them all up. He just becomes infuriated. He looks at the class and says, you obviously do not value the holy word, and I would question if you love God at all. And then he went on a diatribe of about a thousand more questions as he would turn the verse and ask and then turn the verse and just question after question as he had learned how to interact and master it. He had learned the art of the question. And so that's how they would be raised in Beit Talmud to learn the right question. And there's, a, there's actually a, a quote that you will hear in Hebrew literature. Answers are important, but questions are much better. They began to learn this art. And, and if you see Jesus in the New Testament, do you see this? Yes. As you see him interact, oftentimes they'll ask him a question and he immediately asks them another question. You're like, come on. Jesus was a, was a student of Beit Talmud. He learned this art. He learned to look at everything from a different, to ask the right question of somebody's life was to get to the motive of, the, of, of their heart. So why does this matter? Context. This is for free. We didn't have to go into this, but I want you just to know. When Jesus was 12 years old, he was 12, which would mean he was a student in Beit Talmud learning about questions, learning about mastering the word. He was forgot in Jerusalem. His family traveled to the big city, and in the chaos, they packed up and left, and they forgot the Son of God. 
Like, we gave you one job, Joseph and Mary. Don't lose the Messiah. You know? Don't feel so bad, parents. When you leave your kid at Elitch's. They go back to Jerusalem and they look for three days. Can you imagine the panic? I mean, I've lost my child for an hour. Three days. And if we find in Luke, they find him. And guess where they find him? They find him in the temple. At 12 years old, this student of Beit Talmud, he's learning the intricacy of the Bible. He's learning how to, to, to respond to the, the topics with questions and answers and responses. And so we read this in Luke. After three days, they found Jesus in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers and rabbis, the cream of the crop. He's both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and how he answered. It makes sense, doesn't it? We have a Beit Talmud student here who not only just knows how to interact with his subject matter, he wrote it. So he has a little, little bit more there. But that's how, that's, we see context here for what, where Jesus was in life and what he was learning. And at the age of 14, a student would have to have a profound ability to interact with all of these books of the Bible, all the topics, not just memorize for a test, but to know it. And at the end of that, most all the youth would have dropped out. It would be a grueling uh, um, schooling, and few would have made it to graduation. Most of the class would have been winnowed out by the rabbis, or they didn't have enough grit, or they didn't have enough passion, whatever it would be, and they would go home to apprentice in a job. The dropouts would end up as, as, as carpenter, fishermen, weavers, farmers, any other job. And they would apprentice with their parents or a family member, beginning at the age of 13, around there, and continuing on until their death. Now, this wasn't a huge failure, a failure to drop out of Beit Talmud, because everyone did it. Only the best of the best of the best a tiny percentage memorized the entire Old Testament and could interact with the questions and mastery of it. And finally, they would graduate to the next school. The next school was called Beit Midrash. Around this age of 13 and 14, a Beit Talmud graduate would have a comprehensive understanding of the Old Testament and he would take the next step. And this was the hardest one, which says a lot. A graduate would listen to all the rabbis around him or her and he would, they would listen to the rabbis this one, and they would maybe go check out this traveling rabbi, and they were listening to see which rabbi they resonated with the most. Because when you pick a rabbi to follow, you don't pick one that you want to know what they know. You pick one who you want to be like. That's discipleship, becoming like your rabbi. So you want to have, you want to take this seriously. You want to pick the one that you resonate with the most. So they would listen to all these rabbis, and perhaps you would, you would choose one and say, I think they're the most like me. I, 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 I gel with this one. Okay. And then you would approach that rabbi. You would say, Rabbi, I want to be your disciple. Let me bait Midrash in your house of study. But the rabbis, they don't just take anyone. Because, because the rabbi would be known by his disciple's skill. So he would begin to grill you. He would begin to ask you about the, uh, the code of law of Moses or perhaps Daniel's dietary habits in Babylon. He would, turn, he, would, he would test you at each turn to see if you truly were one of the best of the best. You see, each, each rabbi had a unique set of beliefs. Each rabbi had a, a unique way they would interpret these. They, had the big, they agreed on the, the big things, but they would each have a little bit of different way they would interpret the rest of it. And they called that something. They called it a rabbi's yoke. A yoke was their unique beliefs about the Talmud. And so the rabbi would 
question these kids, and he would want to know, is this kid able to be like me? Can they carry my yoke? So the rabbi would test them. And by the end, if the rabbi believed that you were able to be his disciple, to be like him, he would say to you, Dute o piso ego. Come, follow me. And you would leave your family. And you would leave your community. And you would cast away your old life. And you would leave your local synagogue where you've been studying. And you would, you would literally drop everything to go follow the rabbi who said, come follow me. You would become what is called a Talmudin, which means disciple. And your new charge in life, again, would not be to know what the rabbi knows, but your charge would be to be like the rabbi. And you would follow him everywhere. And there's hilarious stories of this about a rabbi walking through a field and he picks a piece of straw and puts it in his mouth as he's just lost in thought. And of course, 10 to 12 little guys behind him just do the same thing. Because what if, he, what if he says something and I don't have the straw with me? There's other stories about a rabbi who, who goes to the bathroom and behind him they all kind of like, they squirm in. Because what if he says something? I'm like, oh, you missed it. You didn't go in. You didn't go in the bathroom. He, he just told us the meaning of life. You missed it all. They would go everywhere the rabbi went to be like him. But for some Hebrew children... They would present themselves to the rabbi, and he would quiz them and grill them. But at the end, he would not say, Dute o piso ego. He would not say, come follow me. <clears throat> he would say, ah, my child, you know the Torah. You know the Torah well, but you're not able to be my disciple. You, go home to your village, marry, have children, and pray that your children could become rabbis. Be blessed and go. And that that youth would go home crushed. The entirety of their childhood has been working toward that moment and they didn't have what it takes. They didn't have what it took to be like their rabbi. And they would leave. And they would go back and they would join the rest of the kids in a trade. So that's what Jesus' school was like. That's what it was like for Jesus as he grew up. He went to Beit Sefer. He went through Beit Talmud. Now, let me ask you a question. What was Jesus' occupation? You don't have to answer out loud. What was his occupation? It was not carpenter. Jesus was a rabbi. He's referred to a rab as a rabbi 13 times. He's 41 times he's called a teacher, which is another term for rabbi. He's traveling around, not working with wood. He's traveling around teaching. He's living the lifestyle of a rabbi. We know that Jesus has been through Beit Sefer, Beit Talmud. We know that Jesus graduated and at some point became a rabbi who was a traveling teacher. So the books of the Bible, called the Gospels, when Jesus travels around, we see something interesting. He doesn't have any disciples. None. A rabbi has to pass his yoke, his teachings off to somebody, and we don't know if they were coming to him and he just said no, or if no one was, we don't know why. But we know that he didn't have disciples. And we also know something else. In this rabbinical system, the disciple, the youth, always went to the rabbi. The rabbi never went to the youth. The youth always chose their rabbi, and then he vetted them. That's how it worked. A rabbi never chose his disciples, and that would be madness. 
Which is why when this next thing happens, culturally in context, it is madness. We, we read this and go, that's, that's really sweet. You have to see this in context. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing the nets. It refers to these, these fishermen. What are they doing? They're working. They aren't listening. They're not there to be his disciple. They're there to do their job. We have Jesus. He's on the shore. And, and, and back from the shore is all this crowd of people. And he's scooted back to kind of get an audience. And then as he's teaching, he looks over and there's those fishing boats. And we, he sees the fishermen washing the nets. Now we know some things already. Do you know who washes the nets in a fishing operation? It's not the father. It's not the CEO. It's, it's his youngest, younger sons. It's the young guys. And so we have these people here washing these nets. And the Bible clarifies that their names are Simon, James, and John. And these aren't bearded old men, wise and sage. These are youth, probably 15 to 20-some years old. Now, if you put yourself into context, these boys are what? Fishermen by trade. If they're fishermen in what we just learned, what do we know about them? They failed. They flunked. They're dropouts. They didn't make the cut. They're not the best of the best. At some point, each of these boys got his slip and went home to work with daddy in the fish factory. None of them made it through. They didn't memorize, or actually they might have memorized. We don't know how far they got, but at some point they were sent home to apprentice in the family business. They're dropouts. These three boys aren't spiritual and educational giants. They're covered in fish guts, and they will be for the rest of their life. That's their trade. That's what they're doing. It's determined for them. Jesus saw them at the water's edge, two boats, left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little to shore. Now, Simon would do this because a rabbi is such an honored, favored, and respected person in the community. So he's over there working, doing his job, and Jesus says, hey, can I, get, can I get a little ride? Okay. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So you have Jesus. He moves a little bit off the shore. Now here he is in a boat. He can kind of see better. Maybe they can hear better. He's looking out, and who's sitting next to him? Simon. Maybe James and John. I got so much work to do. And now here he is. He's sitting there watching the people watch Jesus. He doesn't know it's a little foreshadowing what's to come. When Jesus had finished speaking, he said to Simon, he gets done, and he turns to the side and says, hey, uh, put out in a deep water. Let's let down the nets for a catch. Now, have you ever had somebody who knows nothing about your job tell you what to do? <laughs> I mean, it's like me. I, I'm, not the, I'm not handy. I, didn't, I did not get that skill. It's like me going over and saying, hey, man, you're an electrician. Let's go rewire some stuff. I just feel like getting in there and rewiring some things. <laughs> Plumbing? Yeah, let's give it a, let's go. Let's, let's just go reroute some stuff. I mean, like, uh, what if he did it over here? He'd be like, are you kidding me? Like, like, preachers just maybe shouldn't go around telling business people what to do when it comes to fishing when you've never fished. We don't know if Jesus, what he knows, but he's like, hey, let's go catch some fish. And Simon, master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. Now, obviously, when do you fish? At night. What Simon's saying here is, listen, preacher, we just got done fishing all night long. That's when the fishing is best. 
when it's not so hot. And we didn't catch anything. And now it's midday, it's hot out, and you want us to go out there when there's no good fishing? The only thing we're going to catch is a sunburn, teacher. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. Again, got a young kid here and a rabbi. Because you say so, we'll let down the nets. Because you're so esteemed, I'm going to go with it. (laughs) When they went out in the boat and cast their nets, they caught such a large number of fish, their nets began to break. They signaled to their partners, whistled, come. And they filled both boats so full, the boats began to sink. Now, this is not normal. This is miraculous. This is a -a once-in-a-lifetime catch. And look how they respond. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees. Why his knees? Because Jesus is sitting in the boat. He falls down on his knees, and what does he say? We aren't worthy to be around you, sir. I'm a sinful man. You ever feel like this around Jesus? He's a rabbi, and you're like, I don't even feel worthy to be around you. You have no idea what I do. Oh, he does. Let's see how Jesus responds to this. For Simon and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Zebedee, his partners. But then Jesus says something shocking here. And we turn over to Mark to catch the rest of it. Because I think now we're ready to see the weight of what's about to happen. We can't just read through it normally anymore. Jesus sitting there in that boat. He's sitting there and he looks down into the the eyes of the kneeling Simon, who's wide-eyed. He feels some shame. I have no, I shouldn't even be here with you. He's also just astonished. He looks at John and James. They're covered in water, of sweat and spray. They've been fishing all night. They have not slept. And he looks at their wide eyes. He looks at them, matches each of other gaze, and he says something, something they never thought they would hear. Dute o piso ego. Come, follow me. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. Now, this is wild. Jesus just calls these teenage fishermen, these these religious flunkies, to be his Talmudine, his disciples. He says, come follow me. In their culture, a Beit Midrash student would hear these words, and what would they do? Drop everything and go follow. And that's why we always thought it was kind of strange. These guys just leave their work, right? Their dad's like, everybody ready? You guys done? And they're gone. They just, how strange they drop their nets and leave. But if you see it in context, They might have been waiting for that invitation their entire life. They thought they were passed over and passed up. So they hear that invitation. And it says, at once they left their nets and followed him. And from that moment on, they followed this rabbi until the journey led them to a cross. Then a tomb, then a resurrection. But what's fascinating to me and biblical scholars is that Jesus built a movement not loaded with the best of the best of the religious minds. He didn't start his movement with those who had just wowed everybody. Oh, this is the golden one. These these are the guys that are going to change everything. Jesus' movement is built on a JV squad. These youth couldn't make the cut in the eyes of the religious system. But in the eyes of Jesus, he knew they could be like him. He knew they could carry his yoke. And guess what? They did. They learned through hardship their whole life what it meant to be like their rabbi. And you see them through the end of this book becoming more and more like him. They followed him on dusty roads and on stormy seas and through valleys and and over hills and finally up that hill to the cross. They truly became like their rabbi because when he was resurrected, he turned to them again and said, now you, now you go. 
and you take this yoke to the ends of the earth. And they did. They did it. The revolutionary movement of Jesus continued on through a JV squad to reach the ends of the earth. And here's the bottom line. Orchard, at some point, you've probably discounted yourself from being one of God's favorites. You have disqualified yourself from being somebody who he does big things in and big things through. Because you, oh, you're too sinful, aren't you? I mean, if the people in here really knew what you were doing, we probably wouldn't let you stay. Or, or, or you just don't know enough of the Bible, do you? You don't have enough memorized, or, or you didn't go to seminary. I mean, how could you really be a candidate for God to do something great if you don't know enough? I don't even know what to say. Or, or because maybe your personality is too quiet. Or it's too loud. Maybe you don't talk like a religious person, or you don't act like a priest or a preacher should, or you don't be behave like a good, a good Christian person should behave. You know, these reasons come to mind easily for us. And at some point, we've all discounted ourselves from being candidates for God doing something great innocent through us. Because we, we think of ourselves more as a seminary religious dropout than one of the best of the best. Of course, they should pick me. You see, we are the JV squad, which is good news. When it comes to the, the religious draft, we don't get picked first, do we? We don't get to suit up varsity. And you find ourselves doing our work, involved in a career, pursuing relationships or, or recreation, but just living our lives, and this is who we are, and this is our place in life, and, and we'll do this until we retire. Let's leave the, the big God stuff to the professionals, right? <laughs> but Jesus, this revolutionary rabbi, teaches us right here that he did not build this movement on professionals. And he did not build this movement on those who were the best of the best. He built it on people like you and me. He built it on amateurs. And the same Jesus who sat in that boat with that wide-eyed kid, and he said, do teo piso it go. Even now, right here, millennia later, he, he, the Holy Spirit speaks to you, whispers to your heart right now, my son, my daughter, do teo piso it go. Come follow me. Come follow me. He reminds you that you did not choose him. He chose you. He chooses you. He knows all your excuses. He knows all your sins. He knows all the reasons that you disqualify yourself. And he says, you, my son, my daughter, come follow he knows how young you are. He knows how old you are. And both of you have your excuses for being too old or being too young or whatever your, your place of life would be. Come follow me. The one thing Jesus wants as he whispers these things, he wants our yes. That's all that's required of a disciple is a yes. Yes. He says, I want to do great things in you and through you. Drop your old life, drop your old excuses, drop your old sin, drop your old bitterness, drop your old way of living, cast it aside. Let go of your pride and fear of what others may think because I have a new life for you. Come. Fresh start. Forgiveness of your past, peace in your present, and hope in your future. The orchard, the movement of God in this region is going to be built on those people who say yes to Jesus' call.
that we would cast aside whatever our excuses would be, whatever insecurities or reasons, and we just say, yes, I'm in. Are you following Jesus today? I'm not asking if you're, be, I'm not asking if you're religious. I'm, I'm not asking if you're attending. I'm asking, are you following are you asking, I'm not asking if you're knowledgeable. I'm not asking if you have enough memorized. I'm not asking if you have a, an education. You know I'm not asking that? Because apparently those are not conditions to build a movement on. The evidence is in. Your yes qualifies you. Because Jesus forgives you. And he calls you. Jesus is looking for those whose heart cries out for more who wants to, to, to see change within and change throughout. He's looking for those of us who will stand up to the culture and declare that there is love and goodness worth giving our lives to. He's looking for those who may feel like a flunky, but who have enough faith just to say yes. And today's the day to follow him. Because if you're here today and you have been following for a lifetime, maybe you were saved in your childhood, it's been decades, I don't know when you've been saved, but you at some point made the decision, I choose Jesus. Are you following him today? Are you still following? Because I want to let you know, he doesn't ask you one time. He doesn't ask you once. It's not one and done. He whispers to you this morning, Duteo piso ego. You, come follow me. He still asks that question. He wants you to follow him fresh today in a new way. This morning, for those of you who have settled on Jesus, he wants you to say yes again. To cast aside what was, what was, what was old, to say yes for what's new. And if you're here today and you are unsure about this whole Jesus thing, Jesus says something to you as well. Duteo piso ego. Come follow me. I, I want to let you know, you don't have to have it all figured out to follow Jesus. What if you have some doubts about the Bible? What if there's some stuff in there that you just don't, I don't know about that. If these fishermen had waited until they had enough knowledge and their heads around everything and then said yes to Jesus, they would have died fishermen. Because Jesus isn't waiting for you to figure it all out to become one of the best of the best of the best and then you qualify. You don't have to have any of it figured out to follow Jesus. The first step of your faith could be, I don't know about that Bible stuff, but I'm going to follow Jesus. And I want to remind you, the Bible doesn't save you. Jesus does. So we start with him. Come follow me. I want us all to pray together this morning. Whether you are a seasoned church veteran, he's calling you to come follow him. Whether you have not yet decided to follow Jesus, he's asking you to come follow him. So we're going to pray together. And I want you to pray this with your whole heart. Pray with me. Jesus, Rabbi, I know you're calling me. I have my doubts, things I don't know, things I think disqualify me. But you still call. So I bring one thing. Yes, I will follow. I know you died and resurrected. I give you my life. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Orchard, let's be a people who follow and say yes. All right? 
If you prayed that for the first time today, if, that, if you're one of those who's kind of unresolved, but you prayed that and you have questions, please come talk to me. The rest of us, listen, we're not done yet. We have um, some prayer in the back if you guys want to go back there and get prayed over for small, big things that doesn't matter. We have some people in front as well. We have communion. We do communion every week here. It's up to you to take it if you want. You don't have to, but Jesus said, hey, come do this in remembrance of me. So if you'd like to, it's open for you. But Orchard, let's respond in worship. Amen?